Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, guys. Hello. Some good-looking dolphins on your shirt there, buddy. Thank you. Little bitty ones. I just, I, I just, I, when I was coming in today, I was listening to the Long Form Podcast. Now I'm on the Long Form Podcast. Who would have guessed? Wow, that never <laughs> happened before? First time? First time. Wow. You've never <laughs> listened to it before, have you? <laughs> who are you? <laughs> Max, who did you talk to this week? Uh, I talked to Amanda Hess. Uh, Amanda is a staff writer at Slate. She's also an old friend of mine. I worked with her a long time ago, and uh, I've been excited to have her on since we started this thing. She just moved to New York, so that is why it has not happened until now. But uh, she's great. So if you want to be on the show, you should move to New York. <laughs> that that definitely will up your chances. <laughs> no, we're going traveling this weekend, maybe to get do a secret uh, secret taping. Won't say. I won't blow that one up. <laughs> <laughs> it does involve Seder, though. <laughs> Doing double duty. Doing a little podcasting, a little satering. <laughs> uh, do we have any sponsors? We do. We do. Uh, we have a new sponsor this week, Oyster. Oyster is an iOS app, iPhone, and iPad. Uh, it allows you to do unlimited reading, as many books as you want for one low price. Uh, they have new books, all kinds of New York Times bestsellers. They've got new ones coming in, Oprah's picks, all kinds of books, all the books you could ever read. Check it out, oysterbooks.com slash longform. If you're wondering how to set up a presence for something, you might think, oh, I should make a website, or maybe I should make a podcast, or maybe I'll flyer the neighborhood. But really the thing people do every day is read their email. So I think you should start a newsletter with Tiny Letter. It's MailChimp's simple yet totally direct and powerful way to start an email newsletter. You sign up. They give you a little box. People put in their emails. You send them stuff. It works better than anything else. I highly recommend it. One thing you could tell him about is Max with Amanda Hess. Hey, Amanda Hess. Hi, Max. <laughs> How you Wait, doing? <laughs> it, it sounded like uh, maybe uh, a little. You're like a little exasperated. We're just starting. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, no, I'm. I've never been more energized in my life. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. So great to have you here. Uh, it's so Thanks. thrilling. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I feel like we should like um, acknowledge to people that we have no- I've n- we've known each other for a long time. Right. A while. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like I, uh, it makes me feel old. But it was like maybe six years ago? Yeah, seven maybe. Seven. Here's the thing I remember on my actual first day at the Washington City Paper, which I believe uh, coincided with your like first or second week, maybe writing a nightlife column for the oh, Washington boy. City paper. <laughs> Literally first day, like I got to the office and they were like, "Go and do this." And what they wanted me to do was sit with you and work on a slideshow about sword swallowers. You had hung out with like mm, like mm-hmm. a crew of sword swallowers. Yeah, you I remember did. that? I do. <laughs> that was a job that I got because. Basically, half of the newspaper was fired. I feel like I sort of got the the last entry level job. Yeah. At an alt weekly, uh, but I was like opening mail and putting information into a database, and then our company was bought by this guy, and he fired most of us, and so I quickly was promoted. You <laughs> became the nightlife reporter. <laughs> right. My recollection is this is uh, you and I sitting, and it was like a musical slideshow that we were doing. It's like <laughs> such a bad idea. In hindsight, it was a terrible idea, but at the time, I didn't know what a terrible idea it was, and I was like, it was my first day, so I was like really eager to do it well, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, and I had this really clear memory of sitting next to you and both of us like looking at this computer screen, and it, like, it was very clear to me that neither of us knew what we were doing, but like <laughs> didn't want to uh, expose that knowledge to the other one. 
My first few years at that newspaper, I remember never knowing what I was doing yeah. in any circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> so that was probably so just, also the case then. It just fits in that larger narrative. Yeah. Do you miss your days as a nightlife reporter in Washington D.C.? Do you what, what would have happened? Like, if you can you like play out the string? Like, if alt weeklies are still alt weeklies, do you, do you miss those days? No, <laughs> you just I made a terrible face. <laughs> so it was a nightlife and arts reporting job, <laughs> right? Because, That's why sword swallowing was perfect, right? At least sword swallowing, like no one could make fun of me because I didn't really know what I was talking about because I pretty much got the basics of that like form of performance. (laughs) But everything else, I had no arts background. I didn't understand art. Most of the art that people were sort of making that I was reporting on was like kind of (laughs) shitty. And also it was like people's pet projects. Right. So we had like an uninformed person reporting on some people who had a lot of heart but were not very good. And it was terrible. It was kind of like um, amateurism squared, sort of. (laughs) Yeah, it was a miserable experience. (laughs) But I did it for maybe a year, maybe not even that long. Was the goal then to be a journalist? I can't remember. I I feel like you and I had conversations (laughs) about this, and you were like, maybe I'm not going to do this anymore. The goal was not to be a journalist, but that sort of implies that there there was a goal. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't know. I graduated from college, and I was like... I went and I had maybe my worst job interview ever. Like in college, I had done a bunch of random jobs and I I was, you know, maybe I'll go to law school. I don't know. But I ended Did up being... Did you ever being, like take the LSAT? No, I actually, I almost took the GRE, but by which I mean like I bought some books that <laughs> explained to you how to study for it. And this was like only a year out of college. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I couldn't take the test. I was like, I can't even, I don't want to study math. I was sort of trying to like bumblingly get a job that would, uh, that someone needed me to write things for them. And so I applied for this job like in the middle of Virginia doing technical writing for some sort of weird contractor, some government contractor. And I got this dude who was like the head of the company who like just sat me down and like played his like office piano for me and told me about his like rock poetry (laughs) like rocks like the like not the music like rocks rocks wait uh his poetry about rocks yeah and then he was sort of like i don't know if like a pretty young woman like you could be taken seriously (laughs) here and i was like my mind was totally blown i was like how is anyone taking any of this seriously (laughs) and i didn't get that job Like, he didn't offer me the job, and I was like, wow, I don't really have any skills. And then, miraculously, I got this job at the city paper that didn't really pay any money, but the people seemed cool, Mm -hmm. and the job was fitting with my skills, which were non-existent. And no one was writing rock poetry. Well, (laughs) I did end up, like, interviewing some artists who made rock sort of related art, but I don't think it was poetry. Yeah. Okay. So it's like not always great when you don't know what you're doing and you're writing about people who like maybe are not doing what they're doing at like the highest level either. But there is something kind of great about like learning how to do this stuff and getting paid something for it. Yeah. It was in retrospect, the best thing ever. At the time, I sort of felt like I had too much power. That seems silly now, but like writing this column for like an alt weekly that I don't know how many people read it. I was like, why have I been given so much power? I didn't ask for it and I haven't earned it. But it did teach me how to, you know, talk to humans and pick up the phone. I never reported anything before. Yeah, you also had like really great editors, which is uh, harder to come by now, I think. I've always had great editors, uh, but it's, well, yeah, especially there. I mean, I mean, I more had, hard, harder to come by if you're 23. If you're right, and, yeah. And you can't get like, just the, so much patience. Can't get the like technical writing job. Yeah, like people who cared enough to turn my totally terrible things into something readable. There was a moment at the city paper where you stopped writing about arts and nightlife and whatever that weird menagerie of things is um, and started writing about sex and gender. Right. And that was maybe 2009 or 2010. I remember there was a meeting at the newspaper where it was all of a sudden it was like, okay, guys, we can't just put out a newspaper one time a week. We have to like put things on the internet 
when they happen. And it's true. And people, I think a lot of people were annoyed by that. I was kind of flexible. The only thing that I didn't want to do was not only write about arts and nightlife, but do it all the time on the internet. So I asked sort of to be transferred to create this new thing, uh, which at the time it was sort of proposed as a sex column. And the only iteration of that they had previously had was this woman writing about dating and her sex life. And I didn't want to do that. Uh, So we sort of created this beat for me where I wrote about anything that had any relationship to sex or sexuality or gender, LGBT issues. I remember that uh, when you started it, feeling really new to me. Like, I was also assuming it was going to like be a column about dating and your sex life, and then it was really not that. What were your influences? Like, what, what, was, the, you know, what was the stuff that you were reading that you were trying to, like, emulate? Honestly, it was just other blogs, Jezebel. I liked that website, and I thought it had some great writing on it and sort of surprising things, but it was only about women, and I was sort of interested in in not only writing about women, because a lot of relationships like have to do with more than just us. It was also, you know, some of the gay publications in D.C. that were doing things, The Washington Blade and Metro Weekly, they did great work and they were great reporters, but I felt like there weren't always sort of conceptual pieces being written about like what was happening with sex in Washington, D.C., which is obviously a totally messed up place for that in a variety of ways. Because of its messed upness, like, did you know that there was going to be an audience for it? Or was it just what interested, like what, what you wanted to write about? I didn't know that there was going to be an audience for it. Although one of the sort of agreements that I don't know if this was explicit or I just did it. I would then be writing at first. It was like six times a day. I would write things about who knows what. I didn't only end up writing about Washington, D.C. So I ended up writing things that were sort of more general or national in scope. And that started to get a more an audience sort of outside of the district, although I did not predict that to happen. And actually, whenever I write anything, I'm always sort of surprised. Still? Yeah, that people read it. You assume when you put this stuff out that like it's just going to kind of fall faintly? Yeah, I guess. And obviously it's sort of a different ball game now. Like I I'm writing mostly at Slate now and it's a huge platform. But even then it's a total mystery to me what things, you know, a thousand people will read and what things, you know, two hundred thousand people will read. And do you let that affect what you write about? Probably. But <laughs> I wish I were good enough to know and to change my behavior to do it. But I don't think I am. The only thing I can do is sort of write headlines that I think people will find more interesting. (laughs) And a lot of the people who are, you know, quote unquote, reading my stories are not actually reading them anyway. So maybe I get some some of the sort of bigger ones are people who see a headline and click on it and they go straight to the comments and argue about it. I hear from younger women all the time who are sort of asking me for advice about what to do. And I wish I knew what to tell them, but I just don't. Because I sort of tell them my story and I'm like, well, that's gone now. Right. You have skills that I never would have had, though, because you're young people. But you can't do what I did. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to just be like, yeah, yeah, this is the path. Uh, that path is closed. Now. <laughs> yeah. But you've had, the, you've had a pretty interesting one, even for this little like uh, era of media that you've been working in, right? So you had, you, like, had this blog that was only around, Sexist was only around for like six months. But had this huge audience, this kind of like, you know, meteoric rise or whatever. And then you went and worked at TBD mm-hmm. for like maybe another six months. How long did it last? Uh, it was it lasted for a while, but I was only there for just under a year. So you like got the like um big startup media operation. <laughs> yeah, thing? I got that under my belt. Yeah. Any, um, did you learn any lessons from your big media startup experience? I got paid more there than I had at my previous job. And I also got to work with television stations. Uh, TBD is a now failed online startup uh, for the <laughs> now, now failed <laughs> for the local DC region. Currently and, dead. Yeah, uh, it's since passed. Um, but it was owned by All Britain, uh, so um, we were in the same offices as Politico. 
and to local television stations. It was interesting because I went from a business model where digital was very important, but we were held down by this weekly newspaper that we had to fill, whether we it really made sense to fill it or not, to going to a place where our work had to be sort of vaguely working in concert with local television reporters right. who are just not my style <laughs> of people, especially with when it came to sexual uh, content. So we were sort of expected to like to share sources and information and to occasionally go on TV to explain uh, stories that we had done or were working on. And for me, that meant a local school would change its sex ed curriculum to include mentions of transgender kids. And I would write a blog post about how that was great. And then the TV station would drive up outside the school and interview parents about how terrible that was. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of synergy in that way. Um, but it was very clear that the people who were running the operation didn't like us very much. It, w- it was never clear why it even happened or why it sort of got off the ground or got some funding. And I think it died maybe a year and a half after it started. But you were already gone. I was gone. I moved to Los Angeles and took a job at a magazine called Good, where I had another short-lived job uh, and an interesting experience. Again, that was a new platform, so it was a, a quarterly magazine, and I was fired a year after starting there. It is amazing that very early on in your career, you had like these three really distinct experiences where like the places were having like pretty significant existential crises about what they were and what they were going to be. And it's representative of the moment that we're in, but that's a tough way to come up. Yeah. I mean, I always found it fascinating. I sort of approached all of the internal conflict in the places that I worked as like a fun story, especially because the people who I cared about who I worked with uh, were, you know, remained wonderful and there were a lot of pressures on them and that made me frustrated and sad. But it's also, to be honest, a little bit fun to have a group of reporters and editors who are fighting against, like, you know, a local alternative newsweekly magnate who's turning all of these local papers into a national chain and, like, you know, it was fun. Yeah, it's got, like, some, like, uh, Empire Records. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's Oyster. Uh, I got a hunch that if you like this show, you will like Oyster. It's an app. It's for your iPhone. It's for your iPad. It was one of TechCrunch's best apps of 2013. It's been featured by The New Yorker, CNN, The Today Show, The Times. Here's why. Oyster is the best way to read books on your iPhone and your iPad. If you download it now, you're going to get unlimited access to over 200,000 books. You can read them anytime, anywhere, as many books as you want for one low price. And in fact, if you go right now to oysterbooks.com longform, that's oysterbooks.com longform, you can download the app, you can get a free trial, you can start reading right now for no money at all. They've got thousands of New York Times bestsellers, Pulitzer Prize winners, Oprah's picks. Every week, new books are added. Uh, You can search and explore titles by genre. There's personalized recommendations. The reading experience is fantastic. But really, the big idea here, if you are someone who buys a book every month, if you buy two books every month, you buy three books every month, this is a way cheaper way to read those books. Plus, you're going to get so many more. It's unlimited reading, as many books as you can read, one low monthly price. So go check it out, oysterbooks.com slash longform. That's oysterbooks.com slash longform. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. And uh, let's get back to Amanda. And now let's just talk about all that good work you're doing. Because you're doing a lot of it. Okay. Here is a story I want to talk about. uh, That James Dean piece. If people have not read it, uh, you should just go read it. But tell them a little bit about it and entice them to do so. So James Dean is a typical dude uh, who lives in Southern California who um, is also a porn star, and he is a very special type of porn star because he uh, does straight porn and has a very committed and vocal audience 
of straight women, many of whom are quite young. Uh, They're young teenagers. And so I wrote a story about his fandom and how it challenges all of these ideas that we have about how women experience sex and who porn consumers are and why ultimately that still doesn't matter to people who are creating sexual material and they're still going to be ignored by them. You won't say this, so I will say it. You wrote this story and then a bunch of other people wrote the same story. Yeah, that's true. How'd you find it? How'd you, how'd you find Dean and how'd you get him to open up? Well, part of the reason that I wanted to move to L.A. was because there was this sex industry there um, that I was interested in reporting on. Writing about sex in D.C., while it was super depressing, which could create some stories and there was a lot of contentious things going on, there it was difficult to find a beat there because it was, you know, it was like a gay bashing and then, uh, you know, a rape victim who couldn't find justice and on and on, which was interesting. But, you know, it made it really difficult to sort of develop sources and stuff like that. So that's part of the reason I wanted to go out there. And then when I did, it actually was something that my editor, Ann Friedman, had suggested. She had talked with Molly Lambert, who is another writer out in L.A., and she had been to parties with him, and she was sort of like, this is some guy you should talk to because he's actually, like, really hot. Like, I know he's a porn star, and porn stars, like, seem pretty gross, but he's actually, like, pretty hot. So um, I just Googled him, really. This isn't terrible. This is my terrible, like, reporting uh, huge discovery. I Googled him, and I found all of these websites that were obviously made by teenage girls dedicated to how wonderful he was and also, you know, dedicated to, like, Justin Bieber and Harry Potter and stuff like that. And... The story ended up mostly being about those girls and how they found him and what they liked about him. And it was just very sort of little about him himself. You know, I went into his like weird porn mansion. (laughs) You know, he's very honest and um, forthcoming, but he also is very unassuming. So he sort of didn't have any personal theories about why he's attractive to women or how he's sort of managed to break this this sort of wall in porn that allows women to actually focus on the male performer. Um, because even though he has this huge following, the way that straight porn is filmed, he's barely even in the movie. You know, it's like his penis is in the movie. But he is, you know, he's very modest, and so it was difficult for him to say, this is how I do it, this is why girls like watching my movies. And I think that's, you know, just contributed to why some of these women really liked him. Did you like him? Like, did you like him as a guy? Yeah. I don't really uh, watch his porn. So I don't know how I I feel about his, um, you know, his work. I get asked that question a lot. There was some interview he did afterwards where someone asked him, have you ever had sex with anyone who's interviewed you? And he was like, yeah. And my mom sent it to me. And she was like, question mark? That didn't happen. Uh, But he is a very nice person. And I'm very grateful to him for, you know, being nice enough to talk to me. I just, I don't really watch his scenes, though. That wasn't actually what I was was asking you. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) mean, that's interesting. But did you, like, become friends with him? I mean, I would see him sometimes because I kept writing about porn and so I'd interview him about other things and see him at conventions and stuff like that. But we didn't, like, hang out. Mm-hmm. And what was the fallout from that story? I feel like that was, that must have, to that point, that story must have been the thing that, like, got the most attention that you'd done. Yeah. A lot of people read it, people who I, who I'm sure had not had any idea who I was. And as you said, it inspired all sorts of different stories, which I thought were interesting. Yeah, what's that like when like someone just goes and kind of redoes a story you did, potentially for a uh, much larger magazine? It doesn't feel awesome. I mean, on on the one hand, those magazines knew who I was and were saying, we want you to write this. We want, you know, our writers who are much better paid than you are and men to write these stories. So that meant that they knew who I was. 
But it also just seemed sort of like they were taking this story, which was really about something that women had created. The only reason that he was a story that people cared about was that teenage girls loved him. And turned it into a story that was about him sort of as a celebrity, written by men, and becoming sort of the typical porn star magazine profile that's like, what's it like to have sex with so many girls, you know? And so I thought that was hilarious that they had taken something that was really, like, quite revolutionary, I thought, and turned it into just this, like, man sausage, again, for a men's <laughs> magazine. And then there was the other type of story, which was the parental version uh, which was like, I think, hmm, Nightline or something, or Dateline. I don't remember which one it was. They took the story and basically redid it, interviewing him, interviewing some of his fans, but putting that sort of dun-dun-dun soundtrack behind it and saying that it was terrible for humanity that it was happening. This is a pet peeve of mine. They talked about teenage girls who liked him, but they didn't actually interview any teenagers. They only interviewed women who were in their 20s about it, which I think is dishonest. What are your other like uh, sex and gender reporting pet peeves? I think that's the main one is not talking to the people who the story is about. Seems like a pretty easy one. <laughs> I mean, you've written a bunch about like online dating. And I feel like those online dating stories also like have pretty consistent traps they can fall into. First, there's not understanding the human subject because you don't talk to them or you already have an idea of who they are or what they're doing. And the other is totally not understanding the Internet. So treating it as this insane fantasy land or making some argument about how the Internet, which is this incredibly complex society of people like the internet is doing x the internet is making us not marry each other anymore or you know sending creeps to our house to murder us it's interesting like for you to point out that like those stories didn't go and talk to those teenage girls i assume that it is not just like willful ignorance but that that's actually like hard how could people get better at it or is it only people like amanda hess that can do it That's a great question. I feel like I'm well situated to do it because I am a straight woman. So when I go and talk to teenage girls, at least, I'm a little bit less, you know, seemingly threatening than a man might be. And I'm also in this intermediary age between teen girls and their parents. You know, and this is will and is shifting as I get older, but I can sort of still have some semblance of the world that teen girls live in, but also an understanding of who their parents might be and what they might want to know about what's going on. Well, that's interesting. I mean, do you need to get sort of uh, the parents on board? Need is an interesting question. I haven't usually. My stories aren't, you could say they're not written for teenage girls. So in a sense, you want to be aware that your audience might be people older than them and their parents. So you want to sort of be respectful of the teen culture without making it incomprehensible. But I always feel super scared about reaching out to talking to teenagers about sex because I'm afraid of being accused of creepiness. It's interesting to hear you say that. I mean, a, a thing that I wanted to ask you, you, you strike me as like a um, pretty private person. But you report a lot about kind of like the private lives of other people. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know a question. That's just like a <laughs> sentence that you can respond to or not respond um, to. Yeah. I mean, I, it's true. I'm very shy, first of all, uh, and quite private. And so over the course of my reporting, I've written a little bit more about myself. I mean, in, in one sense, I think it's sort of this cop-out like feeling of solidarity that I am sort of like putting some part of myself out there so I can understand what it's like. But on the other hand, I have full control over that. And I know that when I quote people, you know, as much as I can do to quote them faithfully, I'm the person who's orchestrating the story about them. Uh, And that's not something I would really, I don't think, be willing to give up. I'm willing to give people interviews um, about the work that I do. Thanks. 
<laughs> you're welcome. But I'm not going to be sort of telling someone about my sex life and, and having them go right whenever they want about it. That's a crazy thing to do. And I try to be respectful of that uh, when I talk to people about it. But I do feel like part of the reason that I don't ask for parental permission when I talk to teenagers and that I can sort of get over this feeling of fear and creepiness is that I think there's just this huge need to actually talk to them about their sex lives and how they actually feel about things. Because if I don't, and if others don't, then it's just this Dateline narrative that is whatever's happening, and we don't know what it is, but it's bad. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's bad. I feel like... So you like, feel like you've got like a responsibility to sort of counter that uh, and put out uh, something a little bit more uh, genuine. I do. But it has pitfalls, right? Like there's there's trickiness in that. And has it, Have you made mistakes? Have like Have things come back to kind of haunt you? <laughs> I mean, I haven't been arrested yet or anything like that. After I found all of these James Dean related blogs and figuring out, you know, when you look at a Tumblr page, a lot of the girls like had their ages on them and they their age was like 14. I remember talking to Ann Friedman about it, my editor on that story, and being like, what do you think we should do in this situation? And she was like, I don't know, I think we should just talk to him, you know? And I didn't you know, sort of use their full names or anything like that. And I sort of talked to them about their options in talking with me. And there was one girl from that story who, after I talked with her about her sort of porn viewing interests and what she liked about James Dean, she deleted all of her social media profiles. And I put her in the story anyway because I thought that she was really valuable to it. Uh, but eventually, you know, she, like, cut off all of her digital contacts, which is really, you know, in a way, like, her life. Yeah. And I didn't feel good about that. And I wasn't sure why she did, if it was related to me or feeling like people were watching this private thing that she had that she didn't feel before she talked to me. I don't know why. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because the piece that you wrote in January for Pacific Standard, which we should talk about. I know you've like talked about it quite a bit, but we should talk about it, which was about kind of how women are harassed on the internet and don't have a whole lot of options when that happens. One of the sort of like structures of that idea and issue in the way that you lay it out is that leaving the internet is not really an option. Right. Uh, so it's interesting to hear you say that because I feel like from that piece, it sounds like what women hear a lot is... We'll just like kill your Twitter. <laughs> yeah. And I sort of, you know, I hope that this 15-year-old girl that I talked to just sort of wanted to rebirth her Tumblr or something, an even more beautiful butterfly than it was before. <laughs> uh, but I also know that especially when it comes to sex and especially for very young women, this feeling of constant surveillance is can be terrible. And the story that I wrote for Pacific Standard was probably the most personal in that I did include details about myself that I hadn't in other stories. And I did that because I thought it would make the most interesting story. But I ended up not loving the fact that I was, you know, getting a bunch of calls from MSNBC and CNN and people who mostly wanted to talk about people threatening to rape and kill me. And maybe wanted to talk a tiny bit about the story that I had written about it. And so that put me in this sort of uncomfortable position that I recognize that I put people in all the time myself, which was an interesting thing to happen. Yeah, what was that like? It was tiring, um, most of all. It, and it sort of seemed dismissive of me as a person. It's a strange thing to sort of become somebody else's story, especially when the story is, you're a victim of, you know, an insane online harasser. <laughs> and, like, that's who you are to me. Uh, when obviously, you know, even in the course of writing it, I had hopefully demonstrated that I'm also someone who can think interesting thoughts about that phenomenon. Well, I mean, there's another element of it, which is just that writing that piece at all, I think, was quite brave. Putting yourself in it was braver because... 
it was going to engender like the exact thing that you were writing about. Right? There's like a 100% percent <laughs> right. lock guarantee right. that uh, this exact kind of man was going to respond in the exact kind of way that you were writing about. Mm-hmm. So there's something kind of even uh, more unfortunate about reducing it to like some sort of like confessional, you know? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really think about that or care because that happens to me anyway. But I really? just... That, yeah. you, like, there wasn't... You weren't nervous about putting that piece up? I was nervous in the way that I'm nervous whenever I put any piece up that something might have been wrong, that people wouldn't like it, that my ideas would be basic uh, or easily refutable, or that my story would not be written well enough. Pacific Standard is a not a very well-known magazine. I wasn't expecting as many people to read it as did, and I certainly wasn't expecting anyone to want to talk to me about it, like, on television or something. I'm surprised to hear you say that. I mean, it it read like something that you'd been thinking about and talking about for a long time, and it seems significant that it had, like, come out when it did, sort of. I'm surprised to hear you say it felt like any other story. That's very nice of you. I mean, it was something that I had been dealing with for a long time. And I don't know, this was so this came after my good magazine firing in my freelance period. (laughs) Yeah. Which was about a year and a half. Blue album. Yeah. That ended recently. And like anything else, the story was, in a sense, it was molded by my situation in my financial needs. So at the time, I had done one story for Pacific Standard before. I knew that they had smart editors and that they paid well and that they would be open to me pitching things. And so when someone harassed me when I was on vacation, I was like, this might be good. (laughs) You're like, gold. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe I can make money out of this because I'm already, you know, taking time trying to get people to investigate it. And I'm not making any money doing that, but they want me to write something else for them, so maybe this will work. And it started as something that might be a 2,000-word story. And because this was happening to so many other women at the time, people were writing shorter stories about similar incidents happening everywhere. I really wanted it to be to sort of be able to defend itself against all of this other work, not to put all of the other victims into an adversarial position. But I didn't want to put something out that felt repetitive. And I was very lucky that Pacific Standard was able to accommodate the time and the money. What was the reaction aside from TV calling you up and being like, what's it like to be a victim? It was overwhelmingly positive. Did it feel like, I don't know, my impression of it, which was like like it had been uh, simmering for a while and you were just like, okay, I'm going to do it. Did people respond in that way at all? Like sort of like, thank you for saying a bunch of this stuff that... Uh, I haven't said, or we haven't said? Yeah. I actually got a very fascinating group of different reactions. And for some people, I can't tell people how to read my stories, but as someone who is very hypersensitive and in a way, you know, egotistical, I loved when people came to me and said, this was an important piece or whatever, but the writing was great and the argument was very interesting (laughs) and you brought up ideas that I hadn't thought of before. And I was gracious to people who said, like you just did, you're so brave to tell your story. You know, I'm happy for people to read it that way, but I didn't write it as sort of a piece of activism. Oh, I didn't mean brave to share your story. I meant like that shit sounds pretty awful and that story seemed like it was going to make it a lot worse. (laughs) (laughs) That actually didn't happen. I heard from... Like one guy who was like, I just want to email you to tell you how important that story was and how much I loved it. Just kidding. You're a vagina with a head (laughs) and (laughs) you deserve to die or whatever. Oh, I thought you were going to say like someone wrote and was like, I've been doing a lot of horrible stalking shit on the (laughs) internet and your story really made me think differently. Yeah. No, I didn't hear from anyone like that. Um, But I did hear from some men who were like, you're so brave to tell your story. What women really need is men who are willing to stand up and protect them on the internet. You know, just people who, like, just didn't get it. Yeah, sorry about that email. <laughs> it's okay. But most people, I think it made them think about something that they hadn't thought about before, and that is humbling and wonderful. 
the thing that I dislike is people, you know, asking me to tell them what everyone should do about it, to create policy guidelines for how people should deal with it. It's just not my role. I just sort of wanted to lay everything out and have other people figure out what to do about it. It was a really well-written piece, and the argument was really interesting. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Max. How was freelancing? Did you like that hustle, or are you very happy to no longer be doing that hustle and be on staff at Slate? I'm very happy to not be doing it anymore. (laughs) So happy. It was not something that I think I was particularly good at. I think I was good at certain assignments that I got, and I was able to get certain assignments that I never could have gotten a staff job that would allow me to do that kind of thing, which was great for a time. But it also really sort of forced me to become my own boss, and I don't want to do that. I had to sort of have my own business. I don't know how to do that. I found it very difficult, Um, and I also found that, you know, for every story that I could do that I thought was a wonderful opportunity, there was another story that was total nonsense that I was only doing for money, and I hated every aspect of it. And, you know, I met some editors who I really loved working with, I started freelancing for Slate and started working with Allison Benedict, who is now like my boss boss instead of one of 25 bosses that I had as a freelancer. And then I worked with some other editors who I think mostly because of the freelancing arrangement and not because of anything having to do with our relationship or who they are as people, just like don't really give a shit about you and uh, don't have the time to make your story good or don't even have the time to sort of even figure out if the thing they're pitching you makes any sense. So they give you an idea that they have, and you go investigate it and find out that it, that their idea was never based on anything and it makes no sense. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, sorry, maybe some other time. That doesn't mean they're a bad person, but it kind of means they're like a bad editor a little bit. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Uh, But I definitely found that finding, you know, a couple of people who I worked well with and could work with consistently was something that I wanted to do. So I guess that is a sort of career goal for me to be able to work with people who I like. Okay, so I feel like like, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago or something, you came to this office and we went and had a drink. And uh, I was like, what are you working on? And you were like... I'm going to write a book. Oh, okay. boy. Isn't everyone. Yeah, you were going to write a book about <laughs> porn. And I was like, that is a fucking great book. I will read that book. And you were like, I know. It's going to be really good. Yeah. You were really, you were like a ball of confidence. My fantasy book is great. Um, I didn't end up writing a book, uh, although maybe I will. I figured, it was two things. Again, it was an economic calculation where I didn't have any money And every day I had to wake up and make money. And I wanted the book proposal to be really good. And I wanted the book to be reported. And so that meant that I had to find characters and stories for, like, you know, a very long project. And ultimately, I just didn't feel like I had enough money to do that. I totally understand how it's daunting financially. It's also like daunting in its scope, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. You know, at that time, the longest thing I'd ever written was maybe, at most, maybe 4,000 words. And a book is, I don't know if you know this, it's much longer than that. (laughs) So um, I wanted, you know, a little bit more opportunity, and I still do, to be able to write things uh, that are longer than that and know that I can do that. Um, Because I also feel like you know, all of this help that I have from editors at magazines or with my job at Slate, you don't necessarily have that with the book. You could just yeah. write a shitty book and maybe it's not edited very well and then they release it and then everyone reads it and it's terrible. That was like a, a thing I didn't understand before I started like talking to people who write books. And it's like, uh, oh, no, no, no. Like there was no, they had no edits. It's like no, uh, no notes on That's that book. It's so wild. It's crazy to me. Like these 4,000 word stories go through round and round and round and round and it's like, uh, I just wrote like my life's work, and I didn't get any edits. Right. Not a note. And so many of the facts must 
be so untrue. <laughs> I know. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> I was like, it's it's it gets at like how like any sort of like regulation that seems like exists in journalism is totally like fabricated and built up. It was horrifying, um, and so uh, I didn't do that. But I hope that someday I might be able to do that. Oh, me too. I just I'm not sure exactly when that's going to be. The job is is you I mean you're writing a lot like every couple of days a pretty like you're like writing columns. I do different length things for them. Um, so sometimes I write a, a very short thing and sometimes it's a longer thing. And it's mostly about women and sex stuff, which is you know the thing that I've been doing for many years. Um, but I'm also writing about like culture and tech and stuff, which is great. Yeah, is it nice to kind of like uh, get out of the sex and gender world a little bit? Yeah, it's wonderful. I just don't have that many ideas about women all the time. That many ideas about women just don't exist. And it's a weird beat because, first of all, it's insanely broad. You know, women are just half of people. So that's a pretty big beat. And it's also, it doesn't have any of the things that make a beat easy to follow. It's not like sports or culture where you're sort of constantly being bombarded with material. A lot of the material is either depressing statistics about things that are happening to women or crimes against them, uh, or it's other people's opinions. Responding to other people's opinions. I mean, it's a like very you, theoretical you, type of beat. You you have probably written quite a bit about like lean-in. Yeah. For now, a year, right. I've written about lean-in. I've written, written a lot about that. And that's fine. I, was just, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, that there's not kind of built-in like uh, events and arcs to that beat in the way that there is for other ones. Like It's not like there's like, a, it's not like, so there's like the NCAA tournament or the right. Oscars or something. Right. There's not like rape season <laughs> <laughs> or what have you. Uh, and then, you know, fashion choices season or whatever. So it makes it a little bit difficult. I've really been enjoying the uh, ESPN stuff you've been doing. Oh, thanks. How's that? How's that sports stuff treating you? I mean, it's still a little bit like I tend to write about ladies. Yeah, in sports, ladies in sports, and ladies in like, I mean, like you you just published a piece about a Raiders cheerleader, which is obviously a sports story, but you know, not exactly like on the field. Uh, yeah, and the other story that I did was about boobs. Um, and it was more sort of a cultural story. It, you know, it had elements of sports in it. Was that your idea? No, it wasn't. This was for ESPN, the magazine's body issue. And for a couple of issues, they had focused on body part. And one time it was testicles. And the other time it was butts. And they wanted to go for boobs. But David Fleming, who had written the other ones, was a man. And they thought it could use a woman's touch. <laughs> so I was worried when I when that story came out that people would hate it and think that I was sexist for writing it. Uh, partly because, like, while I am a woman, I have really no personal understanding of this issue in that I do not play sports and I don't have large boobs, uh, which is really sort of the two themes of the story. <laughs> people who have large boobs who play sports and how that is very difficult for some of them. Um, and so it, it really took a lot of work on the writing to make sure and also to have enough reporting that it wasn't just like an idea. Like, here's an idea, guys, like maybe boobs get in the way, which is something that has happened throughout sports. People have said this and have it be, do boobs get in the way and how exactly? Uh, so that was a success for ESPN's woman contingent, I think. Yeah, well, you know, even even if you uh, can't relate, like a big part of this stuff is empathy, right? Yeah, or it's just sort of understanding how to write about women's bodies without being a creep, which is something, which is a skill that I think a lot of women have that men don't necessarily have. Are there male writers who think do that really well? Who write about women really well? Yeah. Oh, boy. I mean, is that possible? I think it's possible. Does it happen in the natural world, though? <laughs> uh, no one is coming to mind. Uh, I'm sure that person exists. I just don't totally know who they are. Or I hope that that person can exist. I hope that person can exist, too, although I think you would know them if they did. Yeah. I also feel like 
if I had written this story for ESPN exactly the way I had written it, but I was a man, the reception would have been different. I, I do not think it would have gone well. No. It's so part of it was the writing, but the other part was just like, we hired a woman to do this. Yeah, but I mean, that's the question is, I mean, not that it's like really important that <laughs> men uh, be able to like do really well on the women beat, but it is a question. It's like, I don't know. I just wonder whether, it, whether it's possible because it doesn't seem like it happens. John Colblin wrote about sexual harassment at ESPN very sensitively, but also with humor, I thought. I have one more question and I'll let you go. It has been striking to me. I've been surprised talking to you how uh, shaky you feel when these pieces come out. Like, you know, thinking back to like uh, doing that uh, terrible slideshow about sword swallowers <laughs> and both like having no idea what we were doing. Uh, like, I'm surprised that you still kind of feel like you don't have an idea what you're doing. Does that like maybe that never leaves? Actually, you know, to clarify, I do feel like I know what I'm doing, although hopefully not as much as I will know in a year and in 10 years, but certainly more than when I was writing about rock art. What I'm not totally comfortable with yet is, like, my feelings about that, you know? (laughs) So I have sort of an understanding of it, but I still feel exposed when people read things that I write. And I feel like being a writer sort of allows me to indulge my, like, privacy and shyness. But also then when it's over, you have to do this big thing where everyone sort of assesses what you've been doing privately and tells you whether it was really good or a total waste of time or not. Well, I think it's been pretty good. Okay, thanks. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for uh, taking all this time. Thanks, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern is Sarah Button. Our sponsors this week, Oyster and Tiny Letter. Go use them. And uh, come back next week. We'll be back then. In the meantime, in the meantime, if you are just sitting around waiting for that next episode, go to iTunes, rate us, leave a comment. We appreciate it. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.